In the year 64 of the Common Era, Rome burned. The great city of a million people, the heart of the Roman Empire, was on fire for seven days. Most of the city was destroyed, from the slums right up to the mansions of the aristocracy. As you can imagine, in the face of this kind of disaster, people were looking for someone to blame. Rumors quickly spread that Emperor Nero had ordered the fire to be set himself, that he wanted to gut the city to make space for his ambitious new building program. Nero was not exactly a beloved leader anyway. As we all know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, the classic insult for incompetent government. History suggests that he may indeed have been to blame for the fire, directly or indirectly. Either way, Nero needed a scapegoat to take the pressure off of him. And as it happened, one section of the city was curiously untouched by the fire, a ghetto of Jewish immigrants, an ethnic minority who had already had a reputation of questionable allegiance to the empire. As the pressure mounted, it seems that someone from within that community went to Nero with a desperate accusation. It was a fringe group from that quarter that had started the fire, they said. The Messianic Jews, the Christ followers, they did this. I mean, they worshiped an insurrectionist martyr. They claimed Jesus as Lord in direct opposition to the authority of the emperor. Blame them, not us. The Christ-following Jews were the perfect scapegoats. And so Nero attacked with the full force of Roman brutality. Soldiers went house to house, hunting down the Christ followers. If anyone confessed or was convincingly accused, the whole household was arrested and publicly executed. If the head of a household denied being a Christian, they were then forced to name someone who was. Neighbors reported on each other, families turned on each other, trying to save themselves. Executions were held in a public arena. The accused were chained down as starving dogs were set loose to attack them. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were among those who were killed. Other leaders were bound and set on fire as human torches for Nero's banquets. The community of Christ followers in Rome was devastated. As Alexander Shia describes it, what could possibly have been worse for those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah? They identified themselves as faithful Jews. It would take another 20 years before they fully self-identified as Christians. They had been totally betrayed and abandoned by their community. Their families, their children, their elders, even Peter and Paul had been gruesomely murdered. We can only imagine the overwhelming extent of their isolation and pain. And undoubtedly, there were times when the promise of the Christ, the prophesied Messiah, seemed hollow and empty. Terror, shame, abandonment, and death are the context of the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we wrapped up a mini-series on the Gospel of Matthew which Alexander Shia says is built around the question, how do we face change? 
Matthew's primary audience, the Jewish Christians in Antioch, were dealing with massive upheaval, instability in their social and economic standing, the loss of their homeland and spiritual identity. Everything was changing far beyond their control. And so Matthew's gospel encouraged them to stay present, to find courage in their tradition, to trust in Jesus' promise of enduring presence and love, for we are never alone. But now, in this, this second of the four gospels, the book of Mark is written to this devastated Christian community of Christ followers in Rome. The worst-case scenario feared by the Antioch community had come true in Rome. Literal persecution, physical torture, betrayal by neighbors and even family, unimaginable grief and loss. How do we move through suffering? That is the question at the heart of Mark's gospel to the church in Rome. What do you say to people living through that dealing with ongoing trauma, whose survival as individuals and as a community is still very much in question. What do you say to someone in that level of pain and fear and loss? This is where Mark begins. Now is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Let this change your hearts and minds and believe this good news. Good news. That's what gospel means. Good spiel, the good story, glad tidings, good news. That's what we want to hear when we're suffering on whatever level. Good news is good, but you have to back it up. Imagine walking into an emergency room, a trauma ward dealing with the aftermath of some tragedy. There's hurting patients and frazzled medical staff everywhere. And you walk in and say, good news, I have good news. <laughs> yeah, do you? This had better be good. It takes conviction to shout good news to people who are really hurting. This writer of Mark had better be able to back up whatever they're selling. This is no time for wishful thinking and empty promises. And Mark begins this, with this story of Jesus' baptism. I know most of us church folks have heard this one a thousand times, but let's not miss that this is quite a bizarre story. There's this guy out in the wilderness in full wild man costume, and he's starting his own cult, complete with backwards rituals, forgiveness in the desert, purity by washing in the dirty water of the Jordan River. And then there's this other guy who shows up, nobody you've ever heard of, and the skies split open, the Spirit of God flutters down, and a heavenly voice declares, this, is, this one is my beloved, my chosen one. At which point the chosen one runs off into the desert by himself for a month. That's a wild story, obviously drenched in symbolic meaning, otherwise it doesn't make much sense. And for those in the know, it was totally unconventional countercultural, and even blasphemous. The Jews knew where the presence of God was, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. That was the center of everything. That was the source of purification and forgiveness. Even those Jews looking for a Messiah figure, those who might have been inclined to listen to a voice crying in the wilderness, they would not have been expecting God to show up out there, coronating a stranger by the riverside. 
This good news is a totally different kind of story. Let go of your expectations and buckle your seatbelts. This is a brand new thing. And yet, at the same time, this is very much a story grounded in the traditional Jewish faith. Pretty much all the greatest hits of the Hebrew Bible make an appearance in the playlist. Mark begins with the prophets. As it was written in Isaiah, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way, a prophet's voice in the desert crying out, make ready the way of our God. John the Baptist is almost a caricature of a prophet, the cartoon version of what people imagined when they thought of Elijah, Amos, Ezekiel, Moses. The lonely preacher compelled by conviction to speak God's truth to power, complete with jarring performance art. Then there is the language of purification and forgiveness, the symbolism of the ritual of baptism. As I said, that was the primary purpose of the temple, the priests, the Torah, to provide the system of sacrifice and atonement, the way for the people to stay in right relationship with God. So the setting isn't in the temple, but this is a priestly story. Then there is also the symbolism of the Exodus story. The movement of leaving the city, going through the water and out into the wilderness beyond the Jordan for a period of 40-somethings of trials and temptations. That is the Exodus journey reenacted by Jesus the Christ. And then there is the moment of Jesus' baptism itself, full of callbacks to the creation story of Genesis, the heavens divided, the spirit hovering over the waters, the voice of God speaking, celebrating their offspring, claiming a life made in the image of God, declaring the new life, this is very good. It's all there, prophets, priests, exodus, and creation. That's the whole story of the Hebrew Bible called out quite directly. This is a new story, but a familiar one. Taken together, this is the story of God's people remixed. Mark is writing to people who knew all of these things, who claimed each of these stories as their own, but who perhaps hadn't put them together in quite this way before. So this is new, but this is drenched in the authority and authenticity of the tradition. And then the whole thing climaxes with the announcement of the voice from above. You are my offspring, my own my beloved, in you I am well pleased. As usual, the gospel is working on two levels. First, this scene served to make it clear to everyone present that Jesus was the real deal, the long-awaited prophet, even greater than John, the true priest, the one who would bring the free and unconditional atonement of which the temple rituals were but a shadow, the ultimate savior come to lead God's people out of slavery by becoming the Passover lamb and the new covenant, and the true human, the image of God incarnate, the very model of what humanity was meant to be. This origin story makes the case for who Jesus claimed to be, true Israel, true human, true God, all together at the same time in the flesh. Mark's gospel makes that bold claim over and over as the various characters in the story struggle to grasp how that could be and what it could possibly mean. This Jesus is what God was up to the whole time. 
So that's the first level, legitimizing to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Christ, God's beloved. And then there's also another level where Mark is not just telling the story of Jesus, but speaking directly to those suffering followers of Jesus in Rome. And to them, the message was quite direct as well. You are my beloved, my own. In you, I am well pleased. In those words spoken to Jesus, his followers in Rome would have heard their own affirmation, their own legitimacy, their own reminder of God's love. In the ancient world, the student-teacher relationship was much more direct and personal than in our world. A disciple took on the identity of the teacher in a deep way. The rabbi was the head of the family, the head of the tribe for their students. If your rabbi gained fame and status, so did you. If someone insulted your teacher, they insulted you. If your teacher was executed for insurrection, you could be as well. I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus said to his disciples. You are in me and I am in you. The vine and the branches sharing the same identity, the same life. That's how deep the connection went. What was true of the rabbi was also true of the followers. And so with what the voice of God speaks to Jesus in those baptismal waters is also true of Jesus' followers. If Jesus is legitimate, then so are you. If Jesus is faithful to the ancient story, if Jesus embodies true Israel, then so do you. If God is pleased with Jesus, then God is likewise pleased with you. If Jesus is God's beloved, even through the betrayal and torture and death that we all know is coming, if Jesus is God's beloved, then so too are those who follow in his way, even through betrayal and torture and death. Imagine what it might have felt like to hear that affirmation for the Christ followers in Rome. All of that persecution, all the betrayal, fear, torture, and loss, surely that would have shaken their faith. Is this really worth it? Is this the way? What if we got it wrong? What if this suffering means that we are weak, that we missed the mark, that God has abandoned us? When bad things happen to us, it's pretty human to take that as a sign of failure. Suffering is disheartening. It makes us question what we stand for, what we believe in, how we see ourselves. This is powerfully illustrated in one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who, Vincent and the Doctor. The episode is based on the true life of Vincent van Gogh. As you probably, probably know, Vincent van Gogh knew plenty of suffering in his life. He struggled with mental illness, with depression and mania, psychotic episodes. He had seizures and delusions. He was medicated and put in psychi psychiatric hospitals. He self-medicated with alcohol. He was a lonely man. People avoided him because of his instabilities. And as a professional painter, Van Gogh was a failure. He sold maybe a handful of paintings. 
He was entirely dependent on his brother for financial support. And at the age of 37, Van Gogh died by suicide. His genius was not recognized until more than a decade after his death. In the episode of Doctor Who, the doctor and Amy Pond travel through time to the year 1890, months before Van Gogh's death. So obviously that part is fiction, as is the space alien that they helped Vincent to fight off. But along the way, they get a good glimpse at the real impacts of Vincent's mental illness, and especially his loneliness and self-doubt. In the episode, Vincent clearly loves his art. He is compelled by his vision of the brilliant colors of the world, but because no one else can see what he sees, because everyone else, almost everyone else rejects him, he sees himself as a worthless failure. He can only see himself through the eyes of his pain. So at the end of the episode, after the bit with the alien, the doctor and Amy invite Vincent into their time machine. They take him to the year 2010, to the museum in Paris that now holds Van Gogh's most treasured paintings. Where are we? Paris, 2010 AD, and this is the mighty Musée d'Orsay, home to many of the greatest paintings in history. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, ignore that, I've got something more important to show you. Take all your chances while you can Never know when they'll pass you Mathematician cannot solve Like me, trying my hardest to explain Glad to be of help. You were nice about my tie. Yes. And today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question. Um, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular, great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist but also 
one of the greatest men who ever lived. Vincent. Sorry. I'm sorry, is it too much? No. They are tears of joy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry about the beard. <laughs> You are my beloved, my own. On you, my favor rests. That's the good news offered to the Christ followers in their suffering. This is who you are. This is the beauty within you and your betrayal, torture, and grief and death can never take that away. You are the image of God, God's own, God's beloved. That is the good news of Jesus Christ for all who suffer. Does that change anything? In the Doctor Who episode, after the Doctor and Amy take Vincent back to his own time, they rush back to the museum to see if knowing the true impact of his work would have inspired Vincent to keep on living, to keep on creating. They find out that no, he still died by suicide. Because mental illness isn't logical, it's not rational. You can't rationalize your way out of suffering. The grief and fear and pain don't magically go away when you're reminded of your true self, when you know that you are loved. But neither does that take away the truth and goodness. As the doctor says to Amy after Vincent's death, the way I see it, every life is a pile of good things and bad things. The good things don't always soften the bad things, but vice versa, the bad things don't necessarily spoil the good things and make them unimportant. That's the beginning of the good news of Mark. You are God's beloved, God's own. Nothing can take that away from you. You are worth holding on to. If you're suffering today on whatever level, this gospel is for you. What is true of your rabbi is true of you. The way that tour guide in the museum talked about Van Gogh, that's how God sees you, one of the greatest humans of all time. Find some way to sit with that voice for a while. Create your own museum if you can, surrounded by your greatest creations. Whether you think anyone else recognizes them or not, you probably can't see what others see in you, but it's there, the image of God. You can sit with that for a while. Whether you're suffering or not, find a way to be that tour guide for someone else who might not be able to see just how great they are. You can share that good news with them. And that's the kind of news we all need right now. That's the story, my friends. Grace and peace to you as you live into it this day.